If you're one of those people who believes that God reigns, would you say amen? amen? If you're one of those crazy people that believe God reigns even when things look like they're going wrong, would you say amen? amen? See, he rules when it's going good and he rules when it's going bad because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God never changes. How about if you take your Bible, if you have one with you, and turn to Acts chapter 16. We're going to pick it up in 15 and finish a few verses and uh, while you're turning there, if you don't have a Bible with you, by the way, there's some in the racks around you. And if you don't own a Bible, there's free Bibles in the back of the church. Make sure you grab one with you on your way out this morning. Um, also, maybe while you're doing that, pull your notes out this morning. Those, those notes would be very helpful for you in following along with the teaching. Um, two things for you while you're turning to Acts chapter 16. Thursday night this last week, uh, my wife and I, Lori and I, went to NCG Cinemas to see The War Room. Excellent movie if you haven't seen it. The War Room, okay? I'm not even going to tell you what it's about. You've got to go experience it yourself. It's worth your time, it's worth your money, and it's worth you telling other people about it. Go, make sure you go see it, okay? Um, second thing is this, and this is, this is the part where I'm going to check back with you about if God still reigns after I tell you this information, all right? Um, hard, hard news. This last Monday... Um, the leadership of New Hope made a decision, and the decision was to withdraw our offer from purchasing the L&L building down in the, the Hazlitt Plaza Square. And we made that decision because it became very, very evident that God's hand was clearly showing us we were not supposed to move in that direction right now, either for timing or for location, we're not sure. Um, some of you might be aware that that particular facility is something we've been trying to negotiate a purchase on. We've been actually talking about it for a year and three months now. And some of you have been told, we're going to tell you next week the news. And next week comes and we don't have any news to tell you. What became very evident to us this last Monday is that the individuals who own the property really want to go in a different direction and make it a retail space. That's the indication right now. And so we kept hearing, next month we'll get back to you, next month we get back to you. But in the meantime, God's continuing to grow new hope, right? And we're running out of space. Well, we can't keep waiting for the next month to arrive. We've got to make some decisions. So new hope is watching and looking for where is God going to take us next? Now, I love God's irony and humor, especially as it comes out in Acts chapter 16 this morning, because the question is asked of us, what do you do when things don't go the way you plan? God still reigns, right? Okay, still on the throne. So you're going to get to ask that question in your own life this morning. What do I do when things don't go the way that I plan? Last week we had an anchor verse, and the anchor verse was, it was found in Romans 8.38. It talked about nothing can separate us from the love of God, neither height nor depth nor principalities nor powers, nothing because it's, it's God that does the work to save us. We don't save ourselves. Well, that was our anchor verse for last week, but with that understanding in mind, I want to take you to this anchor verse, and it's from Paul, written in 1 Corinthians. He said this in 1 Corinthians 9, I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. So you and I get to measure ourselves this morning. We get to ask ourselves, how do I respond when things don't go the way that I plan? So a little interactive opportunity for you this morning. Before we jump into the teaching, would you take just a minute, maybe place your hands on your lap in a, a position of surrender and just open yourself up to the Father and maybe just a quick whisper prayer, God, what do you want me to hear from you this morning? Father, you hear the prayers of your saints ascending before the throne, and in the moment that we just turn our attention to you, we're instantly ushered before you, and we know that you hear us. I'm confident that you have something to say to every person in this auditorium today. We invite that, not just that we would hear it, but that we would respond. So we're asking, Father, how do you want us to respond? We ask for that in Jesus' name, amen. So we're talking about Paul's second journey. In the last few weeks, we looked at his first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas. They went off and launched a whole bunch of churches. They went out into the Mediterranean, remember the island of Cyprus, and they made their way up into what we think of today as modern-day Turkey. 
launched a bunch of churches, and then they came back to Antioch. Then last week we discovered they went from Antioch up to Jerusalem and dealt with the issue about what saves you, works or God's grace. And obviously they, they understood it's God's grace that saves us. So we come back now into Acts 15 to pick up the end of the chapter, and it says this in verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they, how they are. Verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. So this is after the Jerusalem intermission. They've already gone up to Jerusalem. They've come back. Paul says, hey, Barnabas, let's go back to where the churches are at. Let us return. It's not as though Paul's bored. He's definitely not bored. He's leading a large church. It's growing really, really fast. It's a strong church. But Paul has always felt the challenge to go to new places. He's got this burning passion within him. Let me show you a couple examples of his passion. It comes from his own writings. The first one's Romans 15, 20. He said, I aspire to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named so that I would not build on another man's foundation, meaning he wants to go into new territory. Here's another example, 1 Corinthians 9, 16. I am under compulsion for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Where, where does that kind of passion come from? Well, for one, for him, it's a result of his love for God. And it's also his commitment to obedience, the things that God has called him to do. There's no amount of training that takes place in a Bible college that can do that for you. That comes from the Holy Spirit. That's God placing it in an individual. So evangelically speaking, if you want to use a big church word, evangelically speaking, the guy can't sit still. He can't stay motion in, 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 in a stationary state. He's got to be constantly moving. And no matter where Paul's at, Every place he goes seems to be a step to the next location. You would think in his day and age, he'd want to make it to Rome and stay there. It'd be like going to New York City and launching a great church in which you could teach the cultures of the world. Paul wanted to go to Rome. He desperately wanted to be there, but for him it's just a stepping stone. Here's an example of that. He's writing to the church in Rome, Romans 15. It says, I hope to see you in passing. And to be helped on my way there by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, I will go on by way of you to Spain. In other words, you're just a stopover for me. I'm going to be there with you, but I'm going to keep on moving. And from Spain, he wanted to keep on going. How does he have that kind of passion? Well, he's got a passion for people who don't know Jesus, who have no relationship with him. Where does that come from? Well, I told you to pull out your notes this morning. In the very top of your notes, you'll see there's two things specifically that identifies that. It, that kind of passion comes from knowing Jesus so deeply that his love for people who don't know him becomes our own. Well, how do you know Jesus that way? Well, that's the second component. You know Jesus that way by studying his word and by trusting him to show himself powerful in your life. Uh, we'll come back to those two thoughts as we work through this. So we've got in verse 37, Barnabas and Paul are desirous of going out on this journey, and Barnabas comes up with an idea which causes them to stumble right out of the gate. Verse 37, Barnabas wants to take John Mark along. It's written in the imperfect tense in the Greek language, which means Barnabas is being really persistent about this. He's coming back to Paul constantly. It's kind of what I envision has happened here is that Barnabas has dialed up Jerusalem and says, hey, John Mark, how about if you come on back down here to Antioch? We're going to make a journey, and I want you to go. So John Mark shows up in Antioch, and he comes around the corner, and Barnabas says, look who's here. Let's take him with us, Paul. And Paul is as much persistent that he not go. Look with me at the next verse, verse 38. But Paul kept insisting they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. I really appreciate the honesty of Luke here. That kind of honesty in the Bible is one of the things that helps me understand how relevant and how real the Bible is that you hold in your hand this morning. There's no glossing over or trying to make people look more perfect than they are. God has moved Luke to write down exactly what happened here. There's a fight between these two men. Mark deserted the team. They got to a port city at one point on the first journey, and Mark was afraid of where they were going. He knew that it was dangerous territory. He didn't know Paul was going to be stoned within an inch of his life. 
He just knew that where they were going was dangerous. And so he's young and he's afraid and he runs back to Jerusalem. And Paul doesn't want an undependable person going along with him. Standing in the background is Barnabas. Scripture says he's the encourager, ever the encourager. He believes in John Mark. And he says, let's give this guy another chance. Look with me at the next verse, verse 39. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Paul has no confidence in this young man. Paul's tough. He's battle-hardened. He's a soldier of Jesus. He has no use for deserters. I think what's going on here is Paul's still got scar tissue that's really tender. He's come close to dying for the sake of Christ. And he knows what the cost is if, when they go on this mission. Mark runs back to Jerusalem. He's already proven that he's afraid. So we're going to give him credit for understanding what they were up against. We've only recently seen what happened to Paul. So verse 39 says there's this sharp disagreement. The partnership dissolves. They can't come to terms. And this is not cordial. Matter of fact, the way it's written in the Greek language is it's violent emotions. I'm not talking about somebody throwing fists. But there was an exchange of words here in which it really wounded these individuals. So Barnabas sails away to Cyprus. Tells us the truth of Scripture. Godly people do disagree, church. Godly people do disagree. It's one of the painful facts that we have to deal with. Barnabas and Mark never served together again. Matter of fact, you'll never see Barnabas' name mentioned in the book of Acts again. Eventually, these two men reconcile. Paul begins writing really favorably of Barnabas in the book of 1 Corinthians. John Mark apparently is built into in such a way by Barnabas that God changes that young man's life. He puts him on a new course. John Mark ultimately becomes a partner of Paul's. We'll discover him a little bit later, but he's written about many times in the New Testament. And ultimately, he becomes a really close friend of Peter. Peter takes him under his arm, and you know him today as the author of the second book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's John Mark. So that's enough about him. Barnabas and John Mark sail away. They, they eventually take this work on the island of Cyprus. Verse 40 says this, But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So if you're looking for a positive side to this, there's the positive side. But Barnabas and Mark, they leave for the island of Cyprus. Paul and Silas, they head out to the north where there was one group. Now there's two. God's doubled them up. There's going to be a double impact here. So God doesn't let this disagreement harm the impact of the church. And another one of Satan's attempts to derail the gospel has been backfired. Now, Silas, for his part, he's been one of the leaders of the church. This guy's highly qualified. He's a Roman citizen. He speaks fluent Greek, but he's also articulate in the Hebrew language, and he's a great writer. He obviously, because we see him mentioned many times in the New Testament. He's a born of Roman heritage, so he's got all the benefits of being a Roman citizen, and he's highly respected in the church. So when he begins to talk about faith in Jesus Christ through the grace of God... Everybody's going to listen. So Paul and Silas are going to make a powerful team, and they head into Syria, what you think of today as modern-day Turkey, and Cilicia, Paul's hometown territory, and they're about to meet someone. We're told in verse 1 of chapter 16, it says this, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. It would be very helpful for you to understand where they're moving through in the territory. And I forgot to bring the map up in the last service, but you guys get the benefit of it. Blair, do you have that map up there? There we go. Thanks for bringing that up. If you look over to the right-hand side of the screen, you see this area where it shows John Mark in Antioch leaving them. Well, they make their way up around the water, and when they get to Derby and Lystra, that starts to become familiar to us because... We just studied that within the last couple of weeks. Lystra was where Paul healed a lame man who was at the gate. And that man jumped up and the people of the city began calling Paul a god. 
And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. And then they discovered they weren't gods and they hated them and they stoned them and left Paul for dead. This is that same Lystra. This is where they're meeting Timothy, a disciple, a young disciple who's come to faith in Jesus Christ. This is really significant. If Paul and Barnabas had stayed together, they would have gone out to the island of Cyprus first. It would have taken them an entire year to get up around to the city of Lystra. But because they separated, when things didn't go the way that they planned, God caused Paul to go to the north. And immediately, in the very beginning of his journey, he meets this young disciple, Timothy. And at the beginning, he gets to bring Timothy on this journey with him. We'll talk about Timothy in the future, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but verse 1 says he's the son of a Jewish woman, and his daddy is Greek. So this makes him really, really unique. According to the way it's written in the Greek language, it appears the father is dead. It's written in the past tense, so dad appears to be out of the picture. The father was Greek. The mother is Jewish. She's still alive, but she's a Christian. And Timothy is very young. It looks like he's probably about 21 or 22, maybe 19 years of age. Could even be that young. And do you notice that he's well spoken of in verse 2? He's both Jewish and Gentile, which means he's going to be part of both cultures. But he's well spoken of. In the Bible, it says a key requirement of a leader of the church is that they're above reproach. That's the same language that's being used of Timothy. So we've got a young man, early 20s, who's above reproach, well spoken of by the community. He's a follower of Jesus. And Paul recognizes this guy's got capacity for leadership. He's highly highly qualified. I want him to go with us. He recognizes his potential. This is going to be a huge step for Timothy. You would consider this a turning point in his life. Somebody like Paul, who's trained under the house of Gamaliel, has just said, I want you to do this. God is calling you to jump into this. Now, for Timothy's family's part, they know what he's about to face. They saw Paul get stoned in Lystra. They know that Christians are not highly thought of among the Roman Empire. What they're about to send their young son off to, his mom living there, she recognizes he's stepping into dangerous territory. And then there's one more detail that's going to be asked of him. You'll see it in the next verse. Go with me to verse 3. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and, had, and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And right now you can begin asking yourself, how adaptable am I? How adaptable am I when God's got a call on me to do something specific that he's asked me to do? Am I willing to adapt to what he's asked me to do? Paul has stepped into the role of a father. Dad is apparently dead. Paul takes on the leadership role of a Jewish father. And he says, Timothy, you're going to go with me, but you need to be circumcised. What's going on here? We'll call this a matter of expediency. Now, I want to help you to understand this. Because his mother is Jewish, among the Jewish culture, he's viewed as a Jew. So Luke's note that his mother is a Jew And his father's Greek is not there by accident. It's not just an interesting detail. It's to help us understand what's really going on. Timothy is going to be working with both the Jewish and the Gentile culture. He's got to be very, very careful to avoid offending people as he begins talking about Jesus. Here's what's going on. According to rabbinic law, a woman who's married to a Greek man, a Jewish woman married to a Greek man is in an illegal, a non-legal marriage. And in every case where there are children born in a non-legal marriage, the children's lineage is always figured through the mother's line. So to the Jewish world, they're looking at Timothy as a full-blooded Jew. They don't see him as a half-Greek. They see him as a Jew who's been raised in a Gentile culture. And they're aware that his dad's Greek, but that he's choosing to live as a Gentile, and that can be a stumbling block. So from Paul's view, to have a member of his entourage who's of Jewish lineage yet uncircumcised, that's going to be a problem in reaching people. The action that he's asking him to take is going to grant complete access to the synagogues. So hear this. It's not a matter of Timothy's salvation. 
Because salvation is not by works, right, church? It's not by the things that we do. We've already settled that issue. It's not by the things that we do. It's because of what he did. So it's not a matter of Timothy's salvation. And it's not a matter of Timothy's personal character. People are already speaking highly of him. He's highly respected. What it is a matter of is expediency that he not become a stumbling block to those who need to hear about Jesus. So we need to be really aware of this in 2015. We're seeing it here in the first century. Believers have to be sensitive to the unique characteristics of the culture in which we live without compromising Scripture. We're very aware of the uniqueness of the culture that we're surrounded by without compromising Scripture. We've got to avoid giving any unnecessary offense that people would not hear Jesus because of things that we do. So in this case, at the very least, it's a matter of strategy. For Paul, he's just being really consistent with what he understands Jesus' principles to look like. What do we know about what Jesus did for us? The Son of God who emptied himself in order to become like one of us. Right, church? So Paul sees in Jesus the model which we should be emanating to individuals around us. Jesus gave up everything, a throne in heaven, to become like one of us on earth. Why? So that we would know the love of God. Paul says, I've become all things for the sake of the gospel. Let me take you back to the anchor verse. Here's a more expanded version of it. 1 Corinthians 9, it says this, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but now under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. Watch the next part. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. See, today you don't find too many believers talking like that. You don't find too many followers of Jesus Christ looking at their life and asking themselves, what might I be doing that could be offensive to people that cause them to miss Jesus? What might I be doing that's a stumbling block that's keeping people from seeing Jesus? While you're processing that question in your own mind, let's move forward to verse 4. It says, Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Now there's three guys. It was Paul and Silas before. Now it's Paul and Silas and Timothy. Three men who are moving forward. And all these churches are being strengthened. Why? Because they're doing sound biblical teaching. They're delivering the decrees, helping people to understand who they are in Jesus, that it's salvation by grace through faith in Jesus, not because of the works that you do. So verse 5 is really giving you an insight. Verse 5 is giving you an insight into the effects of sound biblical teaching. Do you see what's going on here? The churches are being strengthened in the faith. They're increasing in number daily. See, the goal is not to rack up huge numbers in attendance, but it's true that a well-taught, biblically-grounded church is going to grow. It's going to increase in numbers. We see it right here. Let's go to verse 6. They passed through Phrygian and the Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to them, I'm sorry, and after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go to Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. Some of you are still stuck on verse 6 because it says the Holy Spirit stopped them. They didn't get to go further in their plans where they wanted to go. Before you get stuck there too much, just know I'm going to come back to that in just a second. Every time you look at Paul's expeditions, it reveals something about him. This man is an extraordinary, extraordinarily gifted detail planner. 
He puts pieces together that the average person doesn't do. He is a strategic planner off the charts. But he's also got great sensitivity to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And you're going to see that in this passage. So picture the map in your mind again that you saw earlier. They're heading north. They've gone into the churches that they built. They strengthened those churches. And as they're headed north, they decide, you know, we need to go into Asia and expose people to the gospel. And yet we're told in verse 6, they're forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word there. What's going on there? What's up with that? They've been stopped cold. How did it happen? We don't know. All we know is that they were moving and God says, stop. The Roman road system that they're on. They want to follow this interconnected road, so God has said, don't go into Asia. What I want you to do is follow my lead. So they decide, well, what we'll do is we'll go north, due north up to the Black Sea. And the cities that are mentioned there are surrounding the Black Sea. They decided, we'll go to the port cities then. We'll go to the really populated area surrounding the Black Sea. And then you're told in verse 7, but the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. What's up with that? It's not like they're trying to go build casinos, right? You guys are like so sleepy this morning. <laughs> okay, they're not trying to do things opposed to God. They're trying to talk about Jesus. And yet God has closed the door. The Holy Spirit prevents them. The Spirit of Jesus prevents them. Do you think that they're stumped in this moment? I'm thinking they are. I think they're thoroughly stumped. They've been stopped. The way has been blocked. So what do you do when God's plans are different than your plans? How do you respond? 1994, I'm a very young man, and a man spoke into my life, a much older sage who had great counsel for me. I was facing a set of circumstances in which I felt God was clearly closing a door. Something was coming to an end, and I didn't understand why would he be closing the door? I'm not trying to do anything against God. So this individual said, there's a few issues you need to deal with. And the first issue is this. When you don't have an assignment from God, can you be content with a relationship, Mark? It's a great question to ask yourself. When you don't have the next step clear, when you don't have the next assignment from God really obvious to you, are you content with just the relationship. See, if you don't have the relationship in order first, there's no way you should expect God to show you what the next clear step is. So God's gonna make sure that you've got the relationship in order in order to hear from Him. So what do you do when things don't go your way? You really evaluate, am I in the right place with my relationship? Now, in these individual's case, they're out there doing things that God has called them to do. So clearly, God's got other plans for them in this case. But sometimes when the door shuts unexpectedly, you may not get your fingers out in time, and it may pinch and hurt, right? Ever been there before? God closes the door, you didn't see it getting closed, and it shocks you. It's not as though the region they want to go to is not important. As a matter of fact, there will be churches there later. Ephesus, ever heard of that? Laodicea, Smyrna, those are all places that are written about in the book of Revelation. Those are churches that Paul planted. There will be churches there in the future, but right now, for right now, God says, I've got other plans for you. I've got other issues you need to address. So I imagine Paul's disappointed, even possibly discouraged. Everything has been going so smooth. Paul and Silas are clicking. they got this great young man, Timothy, with them. You may consider it morbid on my part, but I actually find it helpful, maybe even comforting, to know that even the apostles didn't clearly always understand God's will. Is that something you identify with? It's kind of like, okay, I'm good. I see these guys didn't get it all the time either. I'm okay with that. So what do you do when God's plans are different than yours? First of all, you make sure the relationship is right, and that means remembering He's the master, we're the servant. Right, church? He's the master, we're the servant. It's not the other way around. So that means the master gets to make the call. He expects us to adjust our lives to His lead. So here's what you do when you don't know what to do next. 
you keep doing what he last showed you to do because you're sure that that's the right thing. You keep doing what he last showed you to do until he makes the next step clear. And I know that sounds really elementary, but that's so hard to do at times. Keep doing what you know to do. The next stage, though, is the hard part. It was really hard for me to get through this thick Dutch skull. It took me a long time to learn. Even though this man spoke into my life in 1994, it took me a long time to process what he had to say next. And what he had to say next specifically is this. Understanding what God is about to do in your life is more important than you telling God what you're going to do. Understanding what God is about to do in your life is more important than you telling God what you want to do. Because what you've done in that situation is you've made yourself the master and God the servant. And you're saying, God, come on over here, join me in my work. God's saying, well, I'm already working. I want you to join me in my work. I'm the master, you're the servant. Let's not get the roles backwards. So the times in my life when I've been chasing after things that I thought were so significant that I was supposed to be involved in, you know what happened? I wasn't working on the relationship so much that I became so busy with my things. It's very hard to hear God when you're chasing after your things. So we come back to this full center and we recognize we've got some individuals who are not sure what they're supposed to do next, but they know eventually God's going to make a clear path. So verse 8 says they came down to Troas and they waited. And they waited, and they waited. If you have your Bible open this morning and you're one of those who doesn't mind writing in your Bible, I'm gonna ask you to circle three things. Look back at verse six. I know we've already gone past it, but look at verse six. And verse six, I want you to circle the word spirit or Holy Spirit, maybe in your translation. And then in verse seven, circle the word son, or maybe in your translation it says spirit of Jesus. And then look at verse 10. God called us. What do you see coming out of verse 6, verse 7, and verse 10? The Trinity, the Holy Spirit, Christ the Son, God the Father, is about to guide these guys into a place they would have never gone, that they had never imagined. God's taking them to new areas. Paul wants new areas. He's about to get some new areas. So what you're about to see here is something really significant. Verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Help us do what? Not build buildings, not building ships. Paul's been teaching about who Jesus is, right? been traveling the countryside, launching churches. What's this guy asking for? Come over and help us understand who Jesus is. God's waving a flag here saying, I want you there, Paul. This is highly significant. We would even call this pivotal. Paul understands what many Christians completely miss. Paul understands that when God reveals his activity, that is the invitation to join him in what he's doing. That is the moment you jump in and join God, not the other way around. That isn't the moment when you protest and say, but God, I was waiting to go to the Black Sea. What do you mean asking me to go to Macedonia? And many people want to argue their case in those moments. When God makes the invitation really clear, that is the moment you join him in what he's doing. Why is this so pivotal in this moment? Because what you're seeing here is the first entry of the gospel of Jesus Christ into the continent of Europe. It's never been there before. Paul gets to be the first to take a team there for that reason. So verse 10, it says this, When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And if you haven't noticed it already, look up on the screen and you'll see that I put the word we in brackets because this is the very first entry of Luke into the storybook line of the book of Acts. He's the author of Acts, but up till now it's always been they. Apparently, Luke joined the journey at this point. Luke jumps in and from here on forward, we get an eyewitness account. It's the first we expose. Everything from this point forward is we and for the remainder of his life. 
Luke becomes Paul's most faithful and loyal friend. He's even with him in Rome when Paul goes into prison and when he loses his life. Let's move forward. I want you to notice something in verse 10. Do you notice that there's no argument whatsoever? There's no hesitation. There's no whining. God, we've been working on this L&L deal for a year and three months. What's up with this? God's got other plans, right? Plans that he doesn't always choose to reveal. Sometimes for timing, sometimes for location. We see it right here. God's moving these guys. And how do they respond? Immediately, we sought to go. So at once, in the morning when they get up, they begin buying tickets on a passage ship to get there. What you're looking at here is an authentic turning point in history. Authentic turning points in history are really rare. And among them, the Macedonian trip. Because of Paul's obedience, the Western world as we know it today is exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hear this. Your response to God is never trivial. It's never trivial. Because it's the God of glory who's laying these plans before you. How you respond to it determines whether or not you're obedient to God or not. Luke says, verse 10, we concluded that it's God calling us. So here's the basic principle of knowing and doing God's will. Doing God's will is laid right there in verse 10. When you hear clear direction from God, that's the moment you move ahead. Because when God's opportunity is matched up with God's timing, bam, you got to jump on it because God's making it really evident. So when we come into verse 11, we see this team now. Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke. They jump on a ship at Troas in the port city. They head towards the mainland of Greece. Nobody's ever brought the message of Jesus there before. You can almost mentally hear the creaking of the ship and the snap of the sails in the wind. These guys have bought passage. Go verse 11. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. Weather must have been really good because many people take five days to make that journey. They made it in two days, 150 miles across the Aegean Sea. Philippi is an ancient city. Think Alexander the Great. This is his home territory. This is a city that his daddy conquered. We're told in verse 12, there's a Roman colony there. That means the Roman influence is really strong. That means there's a lot of military veterans there. That plays in strong into the New Testament. So they're in Philippi, and they've never been to Europe before. We've got two Jewish men, one guy who's half Greek and half Jewish, and Dr. Luke, who seems to be full-on Roman citizen. Four men, never been to Europe before, and they arrange for lodging for themselves, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait. They're waiting for the next Sabbath, maybe five days. If they arrived in town on a Monday, they're waiting for Saturday to arrive. God said, come. They've come. They've come a long, long way. He must have amazing things in store for them. Because our God does exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we can ask or imagine. Right, church? That's who our God is. He says, I've got things in store that you can't even begin to imagine. So they've come a long, long way. Now, Paul's got a pattern. If you've been studying the book of Acts with us very long, you know that every time he goes into a new city, what's he do? He looks for a synagogue. Because he's always bringing the gospel first to the Jews. And then when the Jews refuse it, he takes it out to the Gentiles. So he's got this pattern going. But it appears according to verse 13, there doesn't seem to be a Jewish synagogue in this monstrous city of Philippi. The last verse for today, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. See, instead of a synagogue, they learned there's just a place of prayer. Outside the gates, mile and a quarter away, side of the river, they can't locate a synagogue because there isn't one. But that doesn't stop them. Finish the verse with me. Here's part B. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Gathering of women? 
no men mentioned. It required in the first century to have 10 males minimum of Jewish descent to form a legitimate synagogue. This passage says there's only women present. There's, there's no men present. So the women are gathering by themselves at the side of the river, this place of prayer to meet, to discuss Scripture. And now they get this privilege of being taught by a traveling rabbi. How rare is that? Let alone Paul, who studied under the house of Gamaliel. They're going to listen with all their ears open. So they've got no men to lead them. Paul sits down. Now this is really easy to picture. Sitting on the side of a riverbank, crystal clear blue Mediterranean sky, and Paul takes the position of a teacher and he sits down in the grass. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to leave them there on the side of that river until next week. Hear this. This is really significant to me. The very first people the team reaches on the European soil is this group of women. Paul saw in the vision a Macedonian man who said, come help us. Will you come over here and help us understand who Jesus is? They understood that it was God calling them, so they went. So in the first century culture, you're going to begin looking in the synagogues for the men to begin speaking to them who influenced the family. And they can't even find a synagogue. They show up on a river, and at the river, there's a group of women. In the first century mind, especially in the schools of rabbinic thought, it was widely believed that the Word of God shouldn't even be handed over to women. Totally different than our culture today. Let me read you a quote that I won't even do the honor of putting on the screen of a statement from a school of rabbinic thought regarding women and the Word of God. It says this, It is better that the words of the law be burned than be delivered to a woman. That's not Mark Kring's words, by the way. Okay, just want to be clear on camera and on recording on tape. Okay, that's not me saying that. that. That's a quote. So that's the mindset in the rabbinic school of thought. Paul's been trained in the house of Gamaliel, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews. How much change has taken place in his life? He knows who Jesus Christ is, and he's neither a respecter of male nor female, Jew nor Gentile. God has done such a work in his heart. He's come all this way across the Aegean Sea, and the first people God has him meet is not what he had planned. But he's obedient, and he's adaptable, and God has pushed his buttons the Lord has gone before him. He's prepared the way. So Paul doesn't question who's in the audience. He just begins speaking about who Jesus is. You're going to next week get to see a woman by the name of Lydia open her heart to Jesus Christ, and she becomes a force for the gospel. But that's another story. I want to close this morning in an unusual way. I want to share with you a quote from 1940. Winston Churchill is standing before the House of Commons and he's trying to make a case for why it will require the lives and the energy of the people who live in Great Britain to stop Nazi Germany from what they're about to do. Great Britain, mind you, by the time he makes this statement, is deep into the war. But he's trying to marshal the energies of people listening to be aware of the times that they live in. Look with me at what he had to say. There comes into the life of every man a task for which he and he alone is uniquely suited. What a shame if that moment finds him either unwilling or unprepared for that which would become his finest hour. Potentially, there's individuals sitting in this auditorium today who are going to be streaming the message also in the future individuals whom God has put an opportunity before you and you may be stiff-arming him. Or maybe you're unsure about what he wants you to do next. Perhaps God has you in the place where Timothy is at, where he has to adapt. It's going to cost him something to adapt. 
maybe you're where the team is at. Maybe God's closing a door and you're not sure what you're supposed to do next and you're asking yourself the question, what do I do? You've hit what's commonly referred to as the crisis of belief. Do I believe in this moment that God really has the best for me in mind? That the one who gave his son as a sacrifice for my life Do I believe that that one has my best interest in mind? And once you hit that crisis of belief, you have to ask yourself, am I willing to adapt? Am I willing to adjust my life accordingly to what he's asking me to do? And I promise you, I've been there before. My wife has been there before. We know what this means. When you adjust your life accordingly, you will experience God through your obedience. You just will. That's when God shows himself powerful. Just when you think you've exhausted all your energies, that's when the master steps in and says, now that you're surrendered, let me show you what to do. Let me show you what the next step is. So I had you start out this morning with your hands open wide, praying, God, will you show me how to respond? I'm going to ask you to close that way with me right now. Father, how do you want me to respond to what I just heard? You go ahead and do that quietly, right where you're sitting. How do you want me to respond in my personal life? What about in my nation? What about in my community? What about my church?
If you're standing there right now and you're aware that you're in God's waiting room, I understand it's a very hard place to be. It seems like you don't know what to do next. Well, in God's waiting room, there's a bestseller waiting for you. He says, go to my word. I'll, I'll make my presence clear to you. Now, I encourage you to do what your church is going to do. We're going to continue to do what we know to do. God said very clearly, teach my word. Teach it accurately and make disciples. So we're going to keep doing that until God makes the next step clear. I encourage you, keep doing what God made clear to you last. Let me pray for you right now as you get ready to leave. Heavenly Father, we go out of here this morning understanding that we've encountered you. Perhaps some of us in a way that we did not anticipate. I pray, Father, that these surrendered hearts will hear the resonation of your word in their mind this evening. Maybe at two in the morning when they're laying in bed. For sure through the rest of this week. God, we ask that you would show yourself powerfully and mightily in the lives of every individual here. That you would make your purposes clear for them. That they would first check to make sure that the relationship with you is right. And understanding that, God, that they would wait upon you. Father, we recognize the name of the one who bought us at great price is worthy of this heart of surrender that we offer to you. It's in his name that we pray, the name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.